Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. I'm Logan Jones here with Evan Knowles recording out of Awesome Inc. as usual. Um, let's see some stuff that's going on right now. We have UK opening back up and testing 33,000 students, which is uh, pretty impressive. But the reason we're kind of connected to that is my roommate and one of the guys I've talked about on this podcast before, Luke Murray. One of the co-founders of Awesome Inc. One of the co-founders of Awesome Inc. where we're sitting right now also happens to be a doctor are heading up the entire testing uh, process at UK and they're crushing it too, which is even better to see. Um, but man, just hearing hearing my roommate and Luke talk about it is the undertaking it took to make this happen was really something special and I'm really proud of both of them for for how hard they worked on it. So they've been quick to adapt, so is UK. UK's been great working with them um, and they've, uh, they're doing it successfully so far, so let's hope that it's actually worth it and UK can stay open. Yeah. Um, we've seen some Twitter conversations back and forth about UK opening. I mean, everyone has their opinions. Like, yeah. somebody's going to be upset. Yeah, about we'll something. see. I think from a from the perspective of a UK adapting and using technology, I think they've done a great job. Oh, from for what sure. I've been hearing, I for think sure. it's been really great um, to see them adapt on the fly. And yeah. um, you know, I I, uh, I heard from some from the some of the staff that even prior to COVID, they were doing test programs for remote uh, remote education and they had an entire program mapped out that they were going to be testing this stuff so they already had a plan That's before good. they even know knew covid was existing and then they just kind of totally pivoted to that mm-hmm. so i think they've done you know a really great job so props to them on that front the controversy comes on whether or not they should even you know reopen yeah um, when they know now like before they were open and then covid happened now covid's in the you know it's in the middle of covid so people are like, well, should they even open up? What are their, how are they reacting to this? Does testing once at the beginning do matter at all? So yeah. it's just kind of been crazy. I've, I, uh, I was having a conversation with one of my favorite professors, Darshak Patel. I bet some of our listeners will actually know about Darshak. But he put on his story a quote from someone that was like, people are complaining about paying full tuition when we're doing more to deliver this education to them. And I replied to the story. I was like, this is an interesting take on this. I just feel like, you know, uh, some of the value that I got from uh, the degree that I received at UK, I don't know what percentage I'd want to assign to it, but there's a good amount that came from outside of the classroom and mm. the value that came from the extracurriculars and the friendships and the relationships, all that sort of thing. And I said, you're just not getting that with this. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't understand why you would not pursue a passion or an internship or even a hobby for right now and save your money and then just pick up later. And he, he brought an interesting perspective to it. He was like, yeah, this is true. You don't have all of that. But what you do have in the education side is we now are able to bring in uh, speakers over Zoom that the class would not have had access to prior to that well, and, I mean, and face-to-face. Uh, I'm, I'm just <laughs> relaying his perspective. No, I know. I know. I know. Um, no, he, did, he brought up some good points. Yeah. And they are there, doing, are, there are good points. They are, they're doing all they can to make this, make yes, this happen. And I have, I have some friends that are professors at UK that I know they're working their, their asses off yeah. to make this happen. So yeah. props to them. I hope everything works out. Um, that's yet to be seen though. Yeah. yeah. Uh, other news. Nicola? Nicola. So I just want to talk about this because like, I think the world, um, I think the world, uh, especially the United States, um, has really kind of latched on to Robinhood and some of these other zero fee trading yeah. platforms and what you're starting to Big see time, uh, in this weird time of COVID is people don't have sports. Uh, they don't have uh, gambling on sports, and so what they're starting to gamble on is finance. They're starting to gamble on stocks, uh, which has been wild to see because you can see it in the market. 
all these retail investors who yeah. now don't have a whole lot to do. So they realize that I'm going to jump on Robinhood. It doesn't cost me anything. It doesn't cost anything to buy a stock now. I'm just going to bet on stocks. I mean, you've been doing it. You can't deny it. You and your boy. <laughs> Throw me under the uh, bus. There's a few of your Jesse. friends that are doing it. Uh, well, I did it. I was just doing it five years ago. So now I don't do it anymore. Well, now I feel like it's, e- same, I feel like it's easier cycle. now because if you it catch is. something early, it just well, and, and uh, like I, that's how I learned. Um, and so I'm really glad, you know, in one way to see all these people jumping in and, and gambling because uh, that's what trading is. You know, when you're yeah. trading on stocks, that's gambling. And I did that five For years sure. ago, and that's how I got into finance and educate myself and force myself to learn because you lose money doing that. You know, people are getting lucky. Stocks uh, only go up. Well, that's what they say <laughs> but until until they don't. Uh, you know, people get lucky, yeah. but you lose, you know, it's it's – you can't make money trading stocks if you're not a professional and you dedicate all your time. You could hit it once or twice and then stop and say, oh, I made yeah. money. Yeah. That's luck. Um, sure. But I wanted to talk about this company, Nikola, uh, just because it's a big debate. You know, Is it a scam? They're making these hydrogen and battery fuel trucks. Uh, they have no product. They're worth, they were one time worth $30 billion <laughs> pre-product. <laughs> um, their founder is thought to be a big scam. Oh, really? He's been doing a ton of great interviews with some people like Jason Calacanis and Ark Invest. And so he's he's been on the grill for a while, and it's still yet to be seen if this is going to be a legit company or not. They have some major contracts with some major companies. But it's just one of those stocks that's been in the news because of this whole retail mm-hmm. investing yeah. movement. And they did something unique called a SPAC, which is not um, an IPO, but rather a special um, special purpose special acquisition. Purpose acquisition um, Forgot the last one, I don't know. but it's, yeah. it's called a SPAC. It's it's not an IPO. It's it's a new vehicle to going public. Uh, it's pretty unique. Um, Virgin Galactic did it as well. Um, the the company that's taking people into space. Uh, so just a really interesting time. Uh, I just wanted to bring that up, and you know, those in the audience that, that want to reach out to us and say what your thoughts are, um, let us know what you think about Nikola. Um, another big thing happening related to COVID is college football. Uh, today, I think it was the Big Ten announced mm-hmm. that they're not gonna they're gonna postpone their season. Uh, SEC I think the others out. are gonna follow. SEC SEC holding out right now. If anybody's gonna do football, it's probably gonna be the SEC. Damn right. <laughs> <laughs> All the people that think it's conspiracy theory probably live in this part of the country in the SEC. And Trump's region, even not let them play. Big Trump area. Hashtag let them play. Uh, not to get political, but this area is the one that would probably oh, have football going on if it was gonna happen. But we'll see. I think the others are gonna have to follow. I, I tried predicting what was going to happen when all this started and we were talking about the NCAA tournament and I was dead wrong. So I'm not even going to make a prediction. It's just whatever happens at this point, just like throw it at me. Yeah. You know, it's just at least one we got thing the NBA. after the other. We, we got, got the, the NBA. NBA. Uh, um, Indianapolis 500 is coming back. There you go. Uh, there's Big all race. kinds of events that are that are adapting and, and doing no fans, yeah. but I'm, I'm really glad the NBA is around. Right. Okay, we've talked enough about everything except the people we just interviewed. Um, we had an awesome interview with our first telehealth company. Uh, we've talked to Accelerate Health out a little, but this was our first company that's building a software that's a telehealth software. And man, I was sitting here during some of this conversation just really taking in what, what was being talked about. And it was really a really special episode. So we sat down with Continued um, and the founders, uh, uh, Nate and Richard Walsh. Um, and that was a very interesting conversation, one that I really enjoyed. You had some great insights on that end. Yeah, um, telehealth has just been something that's you know kind of been blown up. Uh, I follow it just because, like I said, mm-hmm. I love investing. That's my hobby, and I invested in a couple of the ones that have really kind of been on the forefront of this whole movement. 
Uh, so it was great to sit down and listen to somebody local and yeah. them talk about it. Yeah. Um, and they're specifically focusing on, focusing on HIV, uh, mm-hmm. chronic illnesses, things right. of that nature right now um, for people that don't have great access to, to healthcare. Um, you know, whether that's in urban areas or sp- really uh, important uh, is the, the rural areas that might not mm-hmm. have great access due to a lot of factors. But they're creating a great platform to get people better care uh, when and where they need it, regardless of you know their circumstances and their access to, to healthcare. So this is a really cool episode. Yeah, well, it's also special because this is, um, well, I feel like one the perspective of, of queer founders is not talked about much, yeah. and you know this is obviously the first time we've ever had um, queer founders come on and talk. So they offer a really unique perspective. Um, not only are they queer founders, but they're married. So yeah. it's it's like they've got the the dynamic of being married and, and working together, but also being queer founders and navigating that um so they touch on touch on that as well which we've, was which was interesting we've had founders on that have been married um i was trying to think yeah. of who it was but it, it slipped my mind um, um synaptic synaptic right? that's correct yeah. um and so it's you know we've gotten that perspective and i'm glad to hear that you know uh nathan and richard's perspective on that is not much different than theirs mm-hmm. it should yeah, be yeah sure. they definitely had some negative experiences insane. but just like you know a married couple would People probably are a little bit. Some people would be turned off by the fact that they're working with a company. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, their founders are married. Some yeah. might not. Hopefully, the majority of them yeah. aren't. Um, but I'm glad to hear that. You know, yeah. hasn't been a huge barrier for them. Absolutely. All right, let's get to it. Yep. We keep forgetting this every time we record these intros, but we're just having so much fun when we're talking. We forget that we actually want you guys to help us grow this podcast. So, the way you guys can help is by rating and reviewing this podcast and helping us get more people listening to this podcast so we can spread the gospel of startups and technology and entrepreneurship. We haven't done a good job of that at all. (laughs) I don't think we've ever asked people to do it. We've asked maybe a couple of times on some of our first episodes. Um, Bring it back. (laughs) But we got to bring it back. Uh, We've had a lot of people write reviews. Uh, They've all been, I think, five stars, which has been great on Apple. Uh, If you guys can, continue to do that. If you haven't and we give you value, we provide you value, please leave us a review because that helps us grow. For sure. And thank you to those who have done it without us asking for the past three seasons. Yep. Thank you. That's all. Welcome back, everybody. You've got Evan and Logan here. We are joined by Nathan and Richard Walsh. They're the founders of Continued. Continued is a patient retention technology. So we're looking forward to sitting down with them, learning all about the business, learning about their backgrounds. And there's a big theme going on in the world right now. Obviously, with COVID, everything's having to move to remote, more digital experiences. And telehealth is a big topic right now. And they're kind of playing in that space. Um, so let's sit down and listen to their story. Uh, Nate, Richard, you guys want to tell us your background? You can start wherever you want, uh, but we'd love to hear where you're from, education, kind of professional backgrounds. Uh, we'll get into some more details. Sure. Well, hi. Um, thanks for having us. My name is Nathan Walsh. Um, I'm 26. I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, born and raised here. I uh, have, I was part of, from an early age, um, a part of the New Tech um, Innovative uh, Education System. Basically, they uh, they move every part of your ed- education to technology. 
um, to kind of get you ready for our current world. And so uh, that from just a beginning had me uh, with a huge passion for technology. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, uh, Richard? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, Richard Walsh here. Um, I'm from Chillicothe, Ohio, small town, middle of nowhere. We didn't have any technology schools, so yeah, <laughs> did it the old-fashioned way. Um, yeah, I've always been an entrepreneur from an early age. Uh, I cut grass um, from, I think, when I was 10 onwards, so I could pay for like my own vacation or whatnot. Uh, you know, always top fundraisers for the school fundraisers. Um, in high school, I started making websites for extra money. Um, and then in college, uh, you know, I kind of started a business and it took off. It was great. Um, so it gave me the opportunity to get that hands-on experience. And that's actually when I realized I felt like I was learning a little bit more on my feet than I was at school. And uh, I actually left college uh, as a junior to sort of jump in full-time to my career. Very cool. I left my junior year as well, so we can relate to each other there. Nathan, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about uh, this technology education. Sounds super interesting. When did you start that? Um, and how long did that last? Did you go to college? Yeah, so that started in middle school um, throughout, my high, um, throughout high school. Um, and I also, uh, you know, was in college with Richard, but we, I also dropped out to kind of work on that business. I really felt that um, I personally learned better by experience. Uh, and I just, I don't think I was learning what I needed to um, in terms of using tech to help people in college. Love that. Okay. So I dropped out very similar reasons. And in, in college, I didn't feel like uh, entrepreneurship was as supported as I thought it was, at least what I needed, needed at that time, uh, especially with the technology side of things. So uh, that's, that's cool. Good to hear that side of your story. Um, you guys also are, uh, how did you all meet? Let's, let's start there. <laughs> so yeah we met a, a little over eight years ago um i was fresh out of high school um we met um on richard's college campus uh over the summer um and then kind of going into that year we i kind of uh joined on with him on his uh web development company and uh we just kind of we really clicked um we worked really well together uh we found out that two heads are better than one when trying to afford food um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've well, I was, I was about to say you guys are now married, uh, so wanted to ask you guys, you know, as as queer founders, how's the experience been, and um, you know, what what's different about being a queer founder, if anything, you know, is that is that something that has been different? Have you guys had a different journey than you think other entrepreneurs? Just talk about talk about that journey a bit, real quick here at the top, because I'm sure that relates to you know the the company as a whole. Yeah. Well, it's been a it's been a, a peculiar journey, um, I'd say. Um, you know, you're building this company together. You're building it with um, someone who you've said you're going to spend the rest of your life with. But it is kind of there's that kind of like um, weight there that you know the the company has to succeed or else um, you know what happens to your relationship. And that's not exactly the case, but it is definitely a driving point of why I want to work so hard for this company because it's simultaneously working hard for our marriage. Yeah. Um, Richard, you might be able to speak to this, but I don't really know in terms of how we'd be different than, you know, maybe a, a, a straight couple um, own, uh, who are also co-founders of the company. Um, there's that in itself doesn't seem that uh, much different. It's how we work within our community. I mm -hmm. feel like, 
is a little bit of a difference. We have to obviously um, wade through the stigma of being a, uh, a queer couple, the stigma of being an interracial couple, but I don't think we've really let any of that uh, really bring us or our company down. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah, good I, think, I think, Nate, the only thing is, you know, early on uh, when we didn't have the, have the luxury of being able to pick every client, handpick every client, you know, we did have to deal with a couple of instances of people who were not necessarily so friendly. Um, and, uh, I think my favorite is <laughs> when people like to assume that we are, uh, that we're brothers, right. Um, which is always a really funny conversation because Nate doesn't take that very well. Um, he likes to say that he is not the one from Kenya, uh, which, <laughs> yeah, but, um, all in all, it, it definitely has its perks, uh, because in, within the industry that we work in. Um, focusing, uh, you know, especially on HIV right now, um, a, a large portion of the community, you know, is queer and has that sort of shared identity, um, just given some of the background of it. Um, and so that's helpful to, to work in a community that, that really knows and supports us and that we know that we can support as well. Uh, but uh, aside from, you know, uh, other people who are married and, and work together, I don't think there's really that much of a difference. Uh, those of us who work with our spouse didn't have that shock at the beginning of COVID when everybody started working in the same house together and realized, you know, who their work husband was or who their work wife was. Um, we didn't have to go through that. We already had that. And yeah. we learned long time ago to uh, separate our workspaces from the rest of the house and to each have our own dedicated space um, in separate rooms so that we could have that space and then close it off and be done and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, work is over and it's now time for us. Secret to marriage. <laughs> yep. Okay. So you kind of, you touched on it there about what, what continued actually does and your guys' business. Um, so I know we, we talked on the phone and you guys, you got, got pretty vulnerable with us, which was pretty cool. I really enjoyed our conversation when we had our intro call. Um, so talk a little bit about the story of continued and what continued does and how you guys started that business. Sure. So we'll, st we'll start with what Continued does before we kind of talk about why. Um, Continued is a company that uses technology to bridge the gap in public health. Um, at our core, it's our mission to fight and prevent any outbreaks that may happen in any type of infectious disease. Right now, we're really focused on HIV, and we'll get to why in a second. Um, but we build tech platforms that break down barriers that people may have when it comes to uh, not being able to get into care, um, whether that be because they don't have the transportation, um, whether that be because uh, they don't have access to the resources they need, whether that be because they just don't have, um, they're not educated enough to know that um, these are very real threats um, to their health. Um, we break all of that down and we make it as easy as possible for them to get into their care um, and we also really help with uh, improving the digital infrastructure of the nonprofit community health organizations that we primarily work with. Cool. So talk a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, how you solve those problems that you mentioned of so lack of resources and, and lack of education around the subject. How are you guys actually going about solving those problems? Yeah, so we... Uh, um, we start with uh, our, our main product is programmatic digital engagement. You know when you think of something and two seconds later you start seeing ads for it on Facebook or social media or, or the internet. We are that for HIV testing, for STI testing, mm -hmm. um, for other infectious disease. 
So we use programmatic AI to reach out to high-risk populations online who might be at risk of um, contracting an infectious disease. And then we funnel them into our HIPAA compliance scheduling software so they can easily uh, schedule an appointment with their closest provider to them. Um, from there, we also, um, we also supply business intelligence tablets and technology to help these uh, health organizations um, collect um, valuable and actionable insights so that they know how to better, uh, um, better kind of engage with their communities, where they're hitting and where they're not. Yeah, let's, let's back up and kind of drill into the first part, the digital engagement. Um, I know there's like laws around, you know, medical companies being able to advertise to pot potential patients or, um, you know, certain demographics that might be more susceptible to things. How, is, that, is that true? How do you guys get around that? And how do you target specifically um, demographics that might be more at risk for HIV? How do you guys get that data to target them? And just talk about that process. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think it might help us to kind of take a step back and look at what is HIV. Um, sure. And, you know, HIV is, it, it stands for human immunodeficiency virus. And what that is, is it's an illness that people can contract um, through sexual contact, but the virus attacks people's white cells, the, the cells that are, um, you know, known to fight viruses. Um, and it will suppress them, sort of wear them down so that they can't really fight off other infections. And so, um, a, a common misconception is that, uh, you know, that is something that primarily affects uh, gay people, but it actually disproportionately affects people of color, um, especially uh, black men. And so when we talk about, you know, how, how do we target populations who are at highest risk, we look at those populations that are just most likely to contract that virus. And there's a lot of data out there from the CDC and other sources uh, about who those target populations are. Um, there's a big mm -hmm. campaign right now about ending the HIV epidemic by 2030, and the goal is to um, identify, engage, and uh, reach viral suppression amongst 90% of the population living with HIV. Um, and so we're sort of contributing to that effort by leveraging uh, the digital advertising to target those populations and just connect them with care. Uh, we, we don't offer, uh, we're not advertising treatments uh, or any specific medication. Um, we're not, uh, you know, engaging or, or trying to get them to pay for services. We're connecting them with 100% free services, the closest services to them, and running advertising campaigns that just help them understand their risk um, and, and why it's important and why, you know, accessing this type of testing should be a regular part of their health care experience. Um, and there are a lot of barriers and there are a lot of misconceptions in healthcare, especially in, in the populations that we're talking to, just because there's a great distrust in healthcare. So there's a lot that we have to overcome to, to mm -hmm. get people to the table. Um, but that's the work that we do to help connect those individuals who otherwise would not necessarily access this type of care and get them to a facility close to them so they can take that two minute test and, you know, go on with more knowledge than they had before. Yeah. And you guys are specifically, you know, you, we've mentioned this already, focusing on rural areas, people that don't have great access to this care. Um, what disadvantages do rural areas have, you know, compared to urban areas? You mentioned one, you know, lack of transportation, uh, but what, what are some others that people might not think about? I'd like to point out that we do actually um, work with both um, rural, um, rural and urban um, communities. Uh, it's right. just being okay. in being in the Midwest, that is going to be primarily rural. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, um, 
it really doesn't matter what socioeconomic circle or even um, uh, demographic uh, geo um, geolocation that you're in, um, there's going to be a lot of people who just don't have access to things such as, you know, video ready phones or tablets. Um, not everyone rural or urban is going to have access to transportation so they can get into an in-person meeting. Um, and even in the city here, uh, we still have connection issues, uh, depending on where you are in the city. Um, and so all of those kind of culminate, no matter where you are, especially in the Midwest here, it just becomes barrier after barrier of people trying to get into care. Um, you actually even see these barriers kind of bleed out into other aspects of, uh, of our lives. You know, ever since COVID hit, we have a lot of families who have the same barriers, transportation, uh, resources, and um, knowledge of those resources. Um, you know, they can't get access to education. They can't get access to social services. Um, so we really believe that these are just um, main, major pain points that we're all seeing. Yeah. And I think that that too kind of, you know, one of the things that, one of the services that we offer that um, is really becoming um, the main service that we're offering to organizations is our, our patient tablet access platform. And uh, the, the goal of that is to really target that 15 to 20% of a healthcare provider's population that doesn't have reliable access to home internet, doesn't have reliable access to smart devices, and they can't, you know, meaningfully con have a meaningful connection with their providers over telehealth. Um, and that's something that's really pro uh, relevant right now during COVID because uh, at the very start of this, a lot of providers closed their doors and they didn't meet with clients. Uh, a lot of appointments got pushed. Um, and if you weren't able to access your provider via telehealth, then you weren't able to access your provider. And so we realized that there was a, a critical need for getting people access to that infrastructure. And, and that's where our, our patient tablet access program came, uh, came out of. And it's, you know, we provide patients with a, a 4G data connected tablet with a a screen that's optimized for telehealth. Their providers design it and it has all of the tools necessary for them to have a meaningful connection um, and engage it with their healthcare providers and their, their other types of care in new ways. You kind of hit on it there. Um, you spoke on the value of, of a telehealth company in a time like COVID, um, but tell us a little bit about what it's been like running continued through this pandemic. Has it, has it changed your day-to-day -day operations? What has it been like in the office? Talk, just dive in a little bit and tell us what it's been like. <laughs> Um, well, it's, uh, like every other entrepreneur, it's not been pretty. Um, we uh, are lucky enough that the shift to remote, um, was easy enough, painless enough. Um, but as Richard just said, um, when, when the shutdowns really started happening, a lot of the providers that we work with, they also have to close their doors, um, to keep their staff safe and keep their clients safe. Um, which meant that uh, they weren't really utilizing our services um, as much as we would have liked. Um, and so we were, like every other company, um, kind of worried about, uh, you know, is this the year where it happens? Is this the year where we go under? Um, and so at the start of it, it was really rocky. Yeah. 
Yeah, but we, we do pride ourselves on being really innovative, which I think is what has allowed us to get this far. And so just early in March, we had already talked about this, the patient tablet access program. We had plans to develop and launch um, a platform like that in 2021. Um, just because prior to COVID, telehealth wasn't as accessible. The adoption rates were, re were relatively low. Um, insurance providers didn't have a lot of billing codes open for them. Um, HIPAA compliance laws and regulations made it difficult for meaningful connections. And so there were just a lot of barriers that made a product like ours um, more difficult to bring to market. But when COVID hit, all of those regulations, those billing codes, all of that just kind of got swept away in what has been sort of a temporary relief. Um, but now the cat's out of the bag. There's no way we're going to be able to put this put all of those restrictions and regulations back. Um, and we don't, at least in the U.S. here, we don't see COVID ending anytime soon. So um, it gave us the opportunity to bring a product that we've been talking about to market rapidly. Um, and we've been really talking with our clients and, and digging into the core issues that they have been facing. And it's been very raw and emotional conversations with them over the last several, several weeks, several months uh, about what they're facing in this sort of rapidly evolving environment. Um, that is healthcare. And it's given us the opportunity to, to bring this product out and to, to really make a meaningful impact on the way people can engage with their providers and how they can manage their illnesses from home long term. And it's given us some insights. And we actually have another, uh, another platform that's currently in development, um, a, a social support network that um, it's been proven to work with other types of chronic illness management, but we want to bring it to infectious disease. Um, and we think now is the time to do that, especially with uh, insurance companies being more willing to uh, you know, look at the implementation of new types of intervention. Um, and so, you know, we, we really pride ourselves on having that innovative approach on when, when things get tough, we just keep our ear to the ground and we start conversations and we find out what, what problems are coming up that we have the skills and the knowledge or at least the tools um, to create a solution for. Yeah, love that. That's good. Um, let's, let's get into a few just kind of rapid questions here. Um, how do you guys get paid? What's your all's business model? Yeah, so our clients are the healthcare providers themselves, um, and specifically the ones who are really looking for innovative solutions for how to retain their clients. So our platform has a few different mo modules that organizations can leverage. We've talked about the outreach. Um, we've got uh, digi digitization of workflows and forms. Uh, we talked about the patient tablet access platform. So providers are actually able to just sort of piece together the solutions that are going to work really well for them. And depending on what solutions they leverage, there are a variety of ways that they can pay for them pay for it. Um, the majority of our clients do pay for our services through federal grants. Um, and so some of them also will, uh, with the tablets that they dispatch to their clients, um, they, our warehouse can send peripherals, other uh, remote patient monitoring solutions that integrate with the devices. So if they're tracking and, and monitoring other comorbidities like diabetes, uh, then they can actually utilize our, our tablets with that as well, um, which opens up uh, remote patient monitoring billing um, through insurance providers. So there are a variety of ways how uh, organizations can sort of recoup the costs, but most of our services are covered under federal grants. Great. Uh, now, how long do the engagements last? What are your, con like, how long do these contracts last? Are you getting these multi-year? I guess it depends on the grants, you know, talk about that. Yeah, so um, we actually have a pretty low, uh, low churn rate when it comes to the lifestyle of, um, of a client. Our, uh, in the last three years, we've actually only lost one single client, um, and that was just because they uh, unfortunately ran out of the funding needed for mm -hmm. them to be a 501c3. 
um, they had to close their doors, uh, which uh, was really sad. But we're, um, we're, we actually kind of pride ourselves on our ability to dig into the core issues um, that our clients face and help them create sustainable models. Um, that way they can continue to, uh, you know, seek the, the grants needed and the funding needed uh, to uh, keep our services going. And because most of our clients engage with us through grants and, and other opportunities like that, we do offer really transparent pricing and uh, we engage with them on a year to year basis, which helps, you know, it lines right up with their grants periods. Nice. So I, I know you guys uh, told us a little bit about the way you operate your team in terms of, uh, you know, utilizing remote services and, and contracting people out for different things. So talk a little bit about that. Uh, maybe your guys' day to day roles and then the, the sorts of stuff that you contract out and, and use remote workers for. Yeah, so um, we'll, uh, let's talk about, I guess, our roles, and then we'll talk about the team um, and the model. I think Richard is able to put it um, spectacularly. So um, I'm in charge of, as a CXO, I'm in charge of making sure that all of our clients have a wonderful experience when working with us um, from step one to step 10. Um, I just make sure that all of our projects um, go off without a hitch. Um, I make sure that all of our clients are empowered with the knowledge they need on how to utilize our services, especially our telehealth uh, tablet program that we have. Um, I want to make sure that they are super comfortable when talking to their clients about how to use these uh, really uh, robust pieces of tech. Um, and Richard? Yeah. And, and, you know, we've got, uh, I, I focus on the business development side more. Um, so I, I really focus on that sort of scalability of the company, our engagements, our supply chain, uh, the partnerships that we're able to make. A lot of the technology that we bring forward, we build on existing platforms and we bring really large names to the table with us uh, because we're, we're big fans of leveraging what already exists and, and taking solutions that uh, building solutions on top of um, proven platforms. Um, and so that also sort of extends to the way that we do business and, and how we scale our company. Um, we're big fans of scaling up rather than out. So we've got a small team of six. We're about to add a, a seventh person to the team this month. Um, but any opportunity that we have to leverage sort of an outsource, outsource solution um, or uh, sort of on-demand human labor, we leverage that. So uh, one of the services that we love to use is a company called Fancy Hands, which is, um, you know, sort of at the core, it's a virtual assistant service. But what people often don't realize about it is that it has an API for human labor. Um, so you can actually leverage their API to have real people, uh, people generally with college degrees, uh, perform tasks that you need that a, a computer can't. So you need somebody on the phone within 60 seconds, they can take care of it. Um, you need somebody to proofread or automate or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so we leverage a lot of technology like that uh, to make sure that we're only using the, the, the labor that we need and we're not paying for waste. Um, so that's kind of how we, we scale is we bring really big partnerships to the table and we're very mindful of the types of services and, and the labor that we use. Yeah. I mean, you're starting to see that trend in general software with APIs. You know, people are building these developer tools that are just so much better than somebody would want to build themselves. You know, just use these other tools. They're scalable, right? Sounds like you guys are doing that with human labor, which is very cool. I'd like to just kind of give props to our team, though. Um, they are uh, five other uh, four others seem to be five other people who are just as passionate as we are um, about uh, improving their community through technology in meaningful ways. 
um, we try to, as an ethos, we try to make a point to hire people that are part of the communities that are impacted the most by um, the the same uh, things that we are trying to fight, such as barriers to care and stigma. Um, so to that end, our team is actually majority black, um, as well as, you know, obviously being LGBT owned, because we want to make sure that we're not the outsiders looking in when trying to create solutions for these communities that we so uh, deeply care about. Um, we want to make sure that the voices that are guiding our decisions to create these solutions are coming from people who have firsthand lived through uh, the disparities that are going on. Yeah, sounds like the yeah, it sounds like the perfect uh, team to to go after and tackle this problem. Uh, so that, that's always awesome to hear for sure. Um, but talk a little bit about if you guys have raised any any money or was this bootstrapped? What did what did that look like on that front? Yeah, we are completely bootstrapped. Um, Congrats. <laughs> thank you. Uh, we're, we're hitting some big milestones that we're really happy about. Um, and, you know, it's, it, we, we're really proud, Nathan and I are really proud that, you know, we've put a lot of effort in the last couple of years to build a company that um, we can be incredibly proud of. Um, and, you know, we've, we've actually turned down some money along the way that would have changed our path. And it's just one of the things where we, we want to make sure that, the people that we bring to the table can see our vision. Um, we are out here to revolutionize access to healthcare and make a difference in the lives of people that are often forgotten or disregarded. And so that means that while we're focused on solutions like HIV, our, our goal is going to be to kill our industry, which doesn't sit well with a lot of uh, investors. So when we, when we talk about um, you know, building a model that can scale and engaging with the needs of patients and providers, we only wanna bring people to the table if they're going to listen just as much as they speak. Um, and so that's the more important, we, we're, we're happy to, to grow slow if it means that we can get to where we want to go than to, to grow fast and lose focus. Yeah, that's smart. Very smart. Um, so as part of that, uh, I know you guys talked a little bit about um, the states that you guys are currently operating in and where you hope to be here in the next uh, you know, year to on, on down the road. So talk a little bit about where you guys are currently operating and maybe what your guys' future goals are going forward. Yeah, so we are currently um, in the markets of Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, Texas, um, uh, New Jersey, and um, I'm probably forgetting a state or two, but uh, it's our goal by the end of the year to be in uh, eight additional states for a total of 12 states um, in the U.S. Um, with a, a five-year goal of being completely national. Awesome. And sort of within that five years, we want to become that leader in HIV technology, but at the same time, we'll be expanding into other chronic illness uh, patient retention as well. Yeah. Um, and we can't talk too much on it yet, but there's another platform that we are working on that sort of takes all of the different tools and platforms and resources that we have been uh, building over the last couple of years and combines them into a single solution. Um, so we have a lot of data that comes through our platforms right now, and we want to leverage machine learning and artificial intelligence to automate workflows for providers, really reduce their strain, but also help them really understand when a specific client is most likely to exit care and why. So we can mm -hmm. retain more clients in care. And, you know, um, we, we work to improve quality and access to care, but I think one of the big things about the work that we do and the solutions that we bring to the table is that we save states a lot of money. You know, the lifetime cost of treating an individual with HIV is about $380,000. Preventing that saves that amount of money. But as soon as somebody falls out of care and, and doesn't 
engage in care for a year or more, those costs balloon to over $600,000. So retaining clients in care saves our state governments a massive amount of money. And that's what we're working towards. Very, very interesting. Um, we'll get more. You were touching on it there. You know, the, the data behind all of this, the opportunities you're seeing in telehealth, connecting a lot of the dots. Uh, I want to talk about telehealth here just a bit because um, there are some companies that I follow um, that I want to get to. And I'm sure you might be familiar with them. But first, let's talk about learnings. Uh, each of you, if you could, tell us the biggest learning that you've you've taken from from growing continued. Sometimes you just need to shut up and listen. Is the biggest takeaway takeaway that I have um, personally learned. Um, we've our our um, advisors really dislike when we say this, but there really is no other company doing exactly what we're doing anywhere and there that being said there are companies that have tried even here in indiana but their main pitfall and the main reason they have failed is because they came in uh to work with these grassroots health organizations that have been here since the age crisis of the 80s and then tried to tell them how to do their job how to how to engage with their communities when all they really needed to do was listen to these public health experts and these public health leaders, and then form the um, conversation around how can we assist you? Uh, not how can we come in here and you know give you this whole new thing that's going to work? Um, how can only how can we support you? Um, that's been my biggest takeaway from the years that we've been doing this. Mine is going to be sort of similar, but uh, we need to make space within our organization for the experts within this industry. So um, I think one of the unique things about our company is that, um, you know, while, while we're hiring developers and support representatives and, and things like that, like other SaaS and, and uh, technology companies are, we're also, you know, hiring masters in public health experts or in, in, in public policy experts, people who uh, can really guide us on the intricacies of how we get to where we're going and, and how we can build really unique solutions um, and have that inside voice guide. Um, and that that really helps. Uh, I mean, right now we do that a lot through advisors, um, but we are bringing those voices in and making them a core part of our company. And I think that, you know, as soon as we started doing that, we started churning and, and creating tools and platforms that really worked well with our clients. And, you know, advisors. Um, this is something that I've been learning about um, as I'm starting my company and I've been poking some some friends that I know utilize advisors. Um, how do you, for the entrepreneurs listening that, that might want to get some advisors or at least start talking to people that they think could be advisors, how do you all approach that and how do you guys compensate them for that time that they're giving you? Yeah, I, I really hope we're allowed to say this, but um, most of our crucial advisors we actually got from working with the Endeavor Accelerator, um, the uh, the scale-up um, uh, accelerator in Louisville. Um, the the people who, who work there have um, been a, a godsend to us, um, just kind of opening us up and uh, introducing us to crucial people, including... Um, including insurance reimbursement um, um, experts who have really helped us. Um, our, telehealth, um, our telehealth tablet program would not be as scalable as it is without the insight of these type of investors. So 
I would definitely just say find find an accelerator. Um, yeah, they are great. Yep. Yeah, I, I would I would just echo that as well. Uh, this we're going through our second accelerator now, and both of them have connected us with really great people who are passionate and and having a team of people who are. Um, you know, the accelerators, having people who are experts in startups, handpicking um, advisors for you that they know will work well with your personalities and who can give you the guidance and help you find the blind spots that you don't currently recognize. Um, that is that is uh, invaluable uh, and, and definitely uh, something that everybody should look into having access to. And right now, plenty of accelerators are moving completely virtual. Um, so if you've never been able to take advantage of one because they need you to move, you know, to the West coast or somewhere else, look into doing it now. Um, nobody is meeting in person. I'm so glad you mentioned Endeavor. Uh, Jake Budler over there has been so helpful and has introduced us to so many people and we hear great things about them. You know, several of our guests have gone through their, um, their program, uh, and have very high praises for them. So it's glad, really good to hear that you guys have that same experience. We're, uh, you know, we're we're definitely wanting to build a, a close relationship with those guys over there, and Jake's been Jake's been great. Yes. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll cut this up and we'll send him send him this this part of the, the episode here. <laughs> uh, so, like I said, I want to dig into telehealth just briefly before we get here to the end, because um, it's it's a growing, very talked about topic right now. Um, I, I know this because, um, you know, my hobby, one of my, my favorite hobbies is just investing. Um, and I, I love investing in tech companies that are uh, newly IPO or, or, or very growing very fast. And I just love studying that stuff. And a couple of the ones that I've invested in, uh, were Lavongo and, and Teladoc who seem to be the, the industry leaders, um, especially, you know, Lavongo with their, um, chronic, uh, remote health monitoring and Teladoc with, you know, remote services, whether that's speaking on the phone with a doctor or video conferencing, and they have now merged. And I'd love to hear your all's thoughts if you guys have any on, on those two companies um, and where telehealth is heading, because they seem to be the ones kind of leading the way. I, so I don't, I'm actually not necessarily familiar with uh, the, the path of those two companies, but mm-hmm. I can sort of speak towards the direction of telehealth. Yeah, I think we're sure. really hitting this intersection here where telehealth has been stunted for so long. The, the adoption rates were just abysmal um, for, for uh, as long as it's been around, honestly, until now. Um, and so it's been stunted in, in what it could be versus where it is now. And so you do have these companies that are sort of blazing ahead in what they can do while everybody else is struggling to catch up. But the direction that we're heading is the realization that telehealth is more than just that interaction with your doctor. It is a digital environment that gives you the tools, the education, the resources necessary to be successful and engaged with your health. So it's more than just those conversations. It it is a very unique, customized and personalized plan for you as a patient to really engage in your health in a meaningful way. Um, It's that Amazon shopping experience that makes you want to come back. It is the reduction of the friction and the elimination of all of the barriers as to why you don't go to those appointments in person or why you don't actually follow your doctor's advice. And we break it down and, and, and put it into the um, something that easily fits into the palm of your hand and make you want to engage with it because it's rewarding. Um, and that's what telehealth is becoming. And that's where providers need to be looking as they start to build out this infrastructure for future engagements. Yeah. Yeah. Healthcare, especially to me, younger people, you know, it feels so, you know, you mentioned friction. 
Um, it's, it just feels like there's a lot of friction. You know, a lot of my friends, and including myself, you know, I actually have avoided healthcare in a way without even meaning to because I feel like there's this friction of finding a doctor, calling them, or going on their web. Like, it just doesn't feel as user-friendly um, as it could be. And I feel like telehealth, and this is what I've studied from Livongo, they're really giving control back to the consumers to make the decisions they want um, and give them that user experience. And what that does is it builds trust with the healthcare system. You know, feeling like they're just a phone call away or going to an Amazon-like experience and putting in what, what you feel is wrong with you and then it suggests doctors. You know, that's an experience that I think has been a long time coming, especially for younger generations. It's kind of, um, it just feels kind of like a, a hassle to, to go to the doctor and um, you know, go through all of that, at least for me personally. There's, there's, there's got to be a whole population like that, just because, it will especially kind of that uh, you've gone to college, you're just out of college, post-grad kind of age, because, I mean, shoot, I was used to going to my the doctor my parents went to, and I have no clue how I'd go about finding a doctor right now, and I'd be calling up my mom. Like, you know, yeah. I feel like there's a whole population of that age group that feels the same way, but at the same time is really tech-savvy, so I think that's the perfect intersection uh, for this to really take root and, and, and go like and get big. Yeah. Um, and I think that COVID has been, has been the perfect spot for that. I'm yeah, sure it's really, I, I have care under my family's, you know, healthcare yeah, same. plan, but I just, I don't know what, what I have at my disposal. <laughs> I don't know who to call, you know, to say, I feel like yeah. that, that experience has got to start changing. I feel like for that's, sure. that's definitely happening. Um, biggest barriers to telehealth going forward. Like what do you see as things that are going to slow it down? Is anything going to slow it down? What are the biggest barriers to it really becoming what, what it should be? I personally think that telehealth is a train that cannot be stopped um, yep. with how important it is to uh, maintain social distancing um, nowadays. Uh, it, there's even more of an importance to keep people out of hospitals if possible, um, unless absolutely necessary. And so we're, we're seeing here in the Midwest, a lot of very large hospitals and a lot of the largest uh, healthcare organizations are adopting telehealth. And with restrictions being laxed as they are, it's going to be very hard to kind of go back to a time where telehealth is not going to be at the forefront post-COVID. What's going to be difficult, in my opinion, with this is healthcare providers being very slow to transition their workflows. So when you talk about taking something from offline to online, there's a lot of work that goes into to making that a great experience for everybody involved. And I think a lot of healthcare providers are missing the mark on that right now. Um, I can tell you, you know, um, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned it prior, but I do have HIV. And so I do have to see a doctor regularly. And I have been seeing my providers via telehealth recently. And when I transitioned, to telehealth, I had to re-enter all of my information in the variety of applications when they already had it. My provider already had that on file, so why did I need to enter that again? Why did I have to track down my insurance card? Um, and every time I engage with a different provider, I have to do it all over again. And it's the same thing as filling out paperwork when you go in. It's not necessary. It adds friction. And what providers are missing and where they're, they're missing the mark right now is that they're transitioning the same frustrations to in-person care to a digital experience. And when we talk about digital experiences with healthcare, we have to realize that um, what, what, what a lot of providers have not realized yet is that they're now competing with big names. You have big digital companies that are trying to get into the healthcare space who have the knowledge and the resources to do it well. 
And so small healthcare providers who want to compete on that platform, who want to become leaders in telehealth, need to really start to find that intersection between healthcare and user experience. And they need to start to think about how are they going to make this experience enjoyable or beneficial and rewarding for their clients. Um, and that, I think, is going to be the biggest barrier for, for providers entering this space. And clients are not going to have the tolerance for that for long. Because there are mm-hmm. players who are going to innovate rapidly in this space and they are going to take your patience. I feel like any day now, Amazon's just going to make an announcement that they're just jumping into the space. They've got the logistics pill pack 100%. They're going to buy Walgreens or somebody like that. They're just going to jump in and they probably don't need to, but I'm sure it would help to have a brick and mortar presence um, like, like Whole Foods. But I just feel like any day now, they're going to jump in. Um, just to, I guess, I don't know if I already said this, but this is the last question I have. Uh, this just came up in my, in my mind here. Um, what works for telehealth as far as a patient experience goes and just what has to be in person as far as like maybe checkups or things of that nature? Like when would I have to see a doctor every time and when can I just do something at home? So obviously when you're getting labs done, um, that a lot of that can't be done. Um, digitally. Um, For both um, people living with HIV who are in care and people who are actually actively taking preventative measures like PrEP, a pill that basically makes you immune to uh, contracting HIV as long as you adhere to the treatment, um, you do have to be tested every three to six months or every year or so. um, And that just can't be done uh, over telehealth. Um, we do have a lot of organizations who are ki- kind of bridging that gap um, where they will um, they will deliver a home testing kit to you and then administer telehealth to go over the results but um, really it's it's that small part of of labs and testing that uh, cannot yet be done through telehealth every other aspect though I believe can be done through telehealth I think that a lot of telehealth can be done or a lot of health can be done virtually, but I think that where we're going to see faults is when we talk about the communities accessing care. So while um, the majority of these interactions can be done in a digital format, where there are communities, there are people who um, aren't safe in their homes, who will not be able to access the care that they need or have the conversations that they need with their providers at home. Um, there are people who are, are who are housing insecure, um, who aren't going to be able to, you know, have reliable access to the tools they need for telehealth. And even if they were to take advantage of, you know, a program like ours um, and get access to these devices, there's no, you know, no promise that they're going to have access to them the next month. Um, and then you have individuals who uh, or maybe facing addiction or other issues in their life who really would benefit from that face-to-face conversation, that emotional connection with a person um, to be able to gain access to other social and support services. There's just, there are parts of healthcare that are always going to be best facilitated in a face-to-face in-person meeting, and that's going to be the best possible experience for that patient. Uh, but I believe that the vast majority of our healthcare can be moved to a digital format and that we can provide a higher quality of care as a result. Awesome. That's the the conversation about telehealth there. That was more me just listening and becoming educated, I think. And obviously you guys are in that industry. So you guys had some really awesome insights and I know Evan studies it a lot. So that was, that was cool to listen to. Um, but kind of transitioning now to, so you guys are in, are in Indiana, um, Indianapolis. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Um, 
So talk a little bit about building a company in Indiana and in Indianapolis, especially um, kind of your experiences there and the ecosystem there, how things are looking for, for startups and technology companies. Yeah. So we've heard before over the years that people say that Indianapolis is the startup capital of the Midwest. I don't really know how true that is, um, but we can say that it has been um, relatively painless to start a company here in the city. Um, cost of living is pretty low, um, which allows us to invest more into our company um, and have, have to worry less about you know, our own cost of living. And the the location is great, in my opinion. You know, you're you're within a few hours drive of Columbus, Ohio, Chicago, St. Louis, Louisville, and there are really cheap direct flights to most of the other major cities in the U.S. Um, so Nathan and I, prior to COVID, we did a lot of traveling about once a month at least. We'd get out to another major city and just spend the weekend there. Mm -hmm. um, one of our hobbies and be, nice. living in Indianapolis, especially with the low cost of living, um, made that really possible for us. Yeah. I yeah. love that. I love that part of the United States and, you know, especially in Kentucky, you know, we have access to Louisville's airport, but my favorite is probably Cincinnati's because they have amazing flights out West, like mm -hmm. super cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It's Denver great. and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Um, talk about uh, what the ecosystem and the support system in Indiana has meant to you guys so far and how that's helped you and what, what the system's doing well there. Yeah. Um, well, so I think that the, the startup culture here is really great. So we are a rapidly growing um, startup city, right? So we've got a, a large support network here or a growing support network here. And we're starting to see more interaction with networks in Chicago and Louisville and Columbus and elsewhere. Um, the Midwest part of the, the startup culture, I think, really facilitates a lot of the interactions here. Um, and so you do feel pretty supported here, at least we do, uh, when you really involve yourself in the community. Um, and I feel like the, the city and the state are really supportive as well. Uh, we just went into negotiations with the, with the city and the state, and they uh, put down a really great uh, incentive for us to stay here. Um, and so, you know, they're certainly willing to invest in companies that they feel are going to make a difference. And between their offer and I keep mentioning the low cost of living and the rapidly, rapidly expanding amenities in the city, um, I, I think we're here to stay for a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of our advisors once asked us why we haven't thought of taking our company to uh, the West Coast or, um, or to New York. Um, and the simple matter of it is that we're we're building our company for the sole purpose of helping our communities um and we've already we're already doing so much here that it just it wouldn't be fair to those communities that we are dedicated to serve um to just up and leave um we have work to do here before we can even think about uh scaling out like that yeah, that's good to hear i'm sure the the community that you're serving and the organizations you guys are helping out are very grateful and and glad to hear you guys say that as bigger well. than just making money yeah for sure and you guys we can tell you guys realize that um so talk about talk about stuff that indiana and indianapolis could be doing better maybe as a startup ecosystem or as a state and a city as a whole areas for improvement um, well, I think that there's just this is maybe not specific to Indianapolis or Indiana, but there's a severe shortage of investors in the area, um, especially investors who are interested in having conversations with you know minority owned businesses or women owned businesses. Um, and we know that that's just an issue nationwide, but I think we really see that here in the Midwest. 
Um, so I think that, you know, the community, the state, they need to make, we need to have stronger um, reasons for investors to be here. We need to really make that case and we need to bring that type of interaction here to make more opportunities for the startups in this area because there's a lot of great talent here um, that, that's just, you know, overshadowed by what you see on the coasts or um, just not able to get to the table. Yeah, that's something we hear often. And, and, you know, one of the things that we're trying to tackle is just creating more conversation. Do you think there needs to be more conversation around minority-owned businesses uh, there and here? You know, like, where are some sources that you think people are, you know, where are people talking about it? You know, like, I guess I'm asking a rhetorical question that's just like, do you see enough conversation around here? And, and if there is conversation, who's who's talking about it? People aren't really talking about it, especially yeah. when it comes to investing in black businesses. Um, you just don't, you don't see that in the Midwest. It's yeah. not, it's not just Indiana, um, but every city I'm in, I'm, I'm hard pressed to find a, um, a black entrepreneur or a black owned business that feels supported by the city mm -hmm. they're in. Um, I guess the, the reason I asked that is because that's kind of our, you know, our story with middle tech is, you know, we didn't feel like there was enough support or conversation around entrepreneurs around here, mainly the conversation piece, you know, there's great support networks around here. Uh, of course, there's always improvement to be done there. But, you know, our big thing was like, there's just a lack of conversation. And I think the way that you start change and the way that you get movement towards more investors coming or more uh, more support for minority-owned businesses, you just got to start the conversation so that the awareness of the problem can be increased to begin with. Um, yeah, so I tried to ask, I failed asking a rhetorical question earlier. I kind of stumbled around that. But but ultimately, I was just trying to get to the point that there's probably, if there's an issue like that, there's probably just not enough people talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and once people start talking about it, people can start to step up and realize that it's actually a problem. Um, and you'll have champions and you'll have those um, those people that want to speak up and, and want to change the, change the state of things because um, you just have to build awareness first. For sure. Um, let's do the, the classic question here, uh, in five to 10 years, let's just say five years, where do you want continue to be? Um, and how does Indiana and the state, the city of Indianapolis play into that? And, and just kind of what's the vision here, uh, for continued and, uh, in the region here? Yeah. In five years, I want to have continued service in every single state of the U S um, possibly even outside of it, because we know that, um, there are communities that could really use help um, in so many places. Um, we would love to just keep doing what we're doing. Um, <laughs> it would be really great if, uh, kind of on a smaller step kind of thing, if um, we could convert um, all of the organizations that we're working with right now to almost fully digital um, workspaces and workflows. Um, in that time to really prove that um, technology can really be used to help uh, these kind of communities in this uh, this kind of industry. Yeah, and uh, my goal, um, I mean, we, you know, we've got goals to build uh, that the platform for patient retention. Um, we've got goals to expand outward and and start to move into other areas. But I think my personal goal with the company is that I want to help. I want our company to help every organization that we're working with achieve that 90-90-90 goal, the, the CDC goal of, of achieving viral suppression for HIV and eradicating the disease by 2030. 
I think we can do it in five years by leveraging technology and with with a providers really doubling down on how mobile health intervention can improve the lives of their clients. I think we can see that achieved among the organizations that we're working with. And I would love to work and partner with our organizations to help meet that goal.